Federal real estate officials and Congress both know the government has plenty of property to dispose of, yet 20 years of effort has produced very little in the way of excess property sales. Five years after Congress refreshed the effort with a new law, the General Services Administration has sold only one building. For more, we turn to the Acting Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Jill Naman. Ms. Naman, good to have you on. Great. Good morning. Thank you. All right. Describe this management process. Uh, there's a whole activity surrounding the disposal of federal properties that you took a look at, and we should note it's been on the high-risk list for ages. Tell us how this is all supposed to work. Managing federal real property has been on GAO's high-risk since 2003, and one continuing aspect of this high-risk area is that federal agencies really have some challenges effectively disposing of excess and underutilized properties. And that's because of a couple of reasons. There's really underlying challenges of a really lengthy disposal process and a lack of upfront funding to prepare these properties for sale. And it just continues to affect progress in this area. Well, couldn't they simply say, here's the property, buy it as is, maybe get a little less, but not have to have all this money to fix them up or whatever they do before they sell them? These funds are really needed to prepare the properties for things like completing environmental assessments, historic preservation assessments. Some of the properties may need to close out service contracts or move tenants or maybe resolve access issues. The General Services Administration has a lot of steps that it needs to go through to prepare these properties for sale, and that costs money. And so this program, the Federal Asset Sale and Transfer Act, or FASTA, was intended to address some of these challenges with a self-sustaining funding mechanism. Got it. And uh, before we get to some of the FASTA issues, is it fair to say, though, that when this is all said and done, the government does hope to make money selling the properties? Well, the sales are intended to maximize the value to the government, but the purpose of the program really is to continue to build on itself. One round of properties is supposed to help fund the next round of properties in this program and reduce the federal footprint. Got it. Yeah. So FASTA then revved up the program in what specific ways? What did it add to this whole long-term issue? Well, I think of it as having really three main elements. First was a centralized process with an independent board that was intended to really think creatively about ways to reduce federal space and look across agencies. The Office of Management and Budget is supposed to review these recommendations that the board makes and approve them. And then the General Services Administration is responsible for executing the recommendations, for example, by selling the properties. And I mentioned the self-sustaining funding mechanism, and this is supposed to work by the proceeds of the sales of the first round being put into an account and appropriated to be used to fund the activities to get the next round of properties ready for sale. And then the third element is really some deadlines that the program put into place, certain steps have deadlines and there's targets for sales proceeds for each of the rounds of properties. And what you note is that, though, since FASTA was enacted, there were initially 11 properties that could have been sold. Only one has been. So what is holding up things? Despite its name, it's not proving to be very fast. Properties were identified and approved according to those deadlines that I mentioned in the Act, but it is taking some time to sell those properties. And some of those activities that I mentioned, like historic preservation and environmental assessments, 
are taking some time to work through for GSA. That current list was approved nearly two years ago, and like you said, just one property has been sold so far, and it's just a pretty low-value one. GSA still has a few of the properties, the highest-value ones, that it's working on getting ready for sale and working through some of those issues, and they probably won't be listed until next year. Another complicating factor is COVID, actually. The ongoing pandemic, agencies are really unsure what their space needs might be and have been a little reluctant to identify properties as unneeded with so much uncertainty. And this has affected what that independent board has to choose from in its recommendations for its next round of properties that are due this month. We're speaking with Jill Naman. She is the Acting Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the Government Accountability Office. You answered the question I was going to ask. Not only has the COVID maybe made the government uncertain of its real estate needs, but it has also made industry uncertain, and therefore maybe the market for these buildings is not so strong right now. Fair to say? Well, we do have some ongoing work on this program that we're going to be looking into the sale process and strategy a little more. And this report doesn't cover it, but some of the things we've heard so far is that there is a fairly robust market still for some of these types of properties. But we have heard that there's just a lot of uncertainty from the agencies about what they're going to be needing going forward. And the one that they were able to sell, what was it? Where was it? What type of a structure was it? Actually, it was a park and ride lot in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and it sold for about $268,000. So uh, one of the lower value properties, some of the other properties that are on the list expected to be listed for sale in the next year are over $100 million each. Yeah, I would say I've never heard of a parking lot getting a historic designation, or, or but there could be environmental concerns. Sometimes they're built over graveyards, or there could be Lord knows what underground there. So even a parking lot's not that easy, though, is it? That's true. It could be. We heard of some access issues with one of the properties where some fencing needed to be put up, or there wasn't actually any legal right of access to the property that didn't go through an adjacent federal property. So there are some tricky issues to work out. Yeah, kind of hard to sell a parking lot if you're not allowed to drive into it, I suppose. <laughs> and what's the overall assessment then of GAO of this program that works through GSA? Yeah, unfortunately, Tom, it's looking like the FASTA program is not going to be meeting its expectations so far. Even if several of those higher value properties were sold soon, the money would need to be appropriated before it's available for the board to use for its next round. And the board's recommendations for this next round are due this month. So it's really too late for any funding to impact this round of recommendations the way it was intended. But there is a final round in 2024. So it's possible we could still kind of prove this concept. But really, the success of those subsequent rounds are dependent on sales in these first rounds. And it's really more important than ever to have proof of this concept. You know, as we're speaking about the impacts of COVID, it's likely the agencies will need less space in the post-pandemic. So really having an effective, proven way of disposing unneeded federal real property is really important. And were there any GAO recommendations on the program itself? We didn't make any recommendations in this report. What we were really trying to do is raise attention to this issue, you know, before it's really too late to make changes. But we are required to report on this program, at least annually. And uh, we have ongoing work where we'll be looking into the sales strategy and some of the potential changes that could be made to the program and could have recommendations coming out of that work next year.
Jill Naman is Acting Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. We'll post this interview together with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. 
And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters uh, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day 
and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Looking for holiday gifts for less? Come to Ross and say yeah to making your dollar stretch on name brand toys, clothes, and gifts. Get the gift of savings this holiday from Ross. Yes for less. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.